So, dear friends, hype it up, everybody. Health Skill Podcast. This is uh, the podcast where we level up your health. And my name is Marcel, and together here, I have the pleasure to introduce you, Salvatore Daniela, my first yoga teacher. And he's an awesome yoga teacher. He's teaching really precise. He has a precise style with movement, with a lot of fun, and also with a lot of struggle integrated into, in his classes. So if you ever can check him out, I highly suggest that to you. And next to that, he's also a group acrobatic yoga teacher and a meditation teacher as well. He's also an aerospace engineer, and I'm very, very excited to have Salvatore Daniele today here. How are you doing, Salva? Hi, Marcel. Thanks very much for having me here. <laughs> Thank you for the great introduction. Uh, I'm good tonight. Yeah, thanks a lot. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm very, very mm -hmm. excited. I'm a little bit nervous. As, okay. As you're kind of like the first first person that really comes out from like the uh, yoga community that I know very well here in Zurich. So from mm -hmm. Switzerland, right? And yeah, we're honoring that as well. And I honor so much that you're here today and having this talk with me today. So uh, first of it all- It is my pleasure, really. Cool, thank you. First of all, I like to invite you to do a little centering practice together with me, not just with mm -hmm. me, but with everybody that is joining right now, everybody that is sure. listening. So I'll invite you and everybody that is listening to come to a great sit right now and start to connect to your body. Feel how your feet are connected to the floor. Feel how your toes and your heels are connected to the floor. Breathing in deep, coming into the presence right here, right now. And I'll, I'll invite everybody to connect with us today. So connecting to Salvan, to connecting to me, connecting to each other, connecting to everybody that is listening in no matter what your experience is in meditation, as we're going to talk about meditation. Connecting to your body and slowly, as you feel ready, coming back out of this little centering, opening your eyes again. arriving to this podcast and dear Salva I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit about your meditation journey so can you tell us about your journey into meditation and how you yeah sure I'll try um what brought me into meditation is a couple of uh, experiences that I had in my life one I would describe as a compassion experience. So I was doing energy healing, and this puts you in a space that is uh, really full of uh, energy of compassion with the people you're in. And this gives you some sort of shifts that at that time I did not really understand. Um, 
And it triggered my curiosity to look deeper inside those states of mind that I was experiencing. The biggest shift, though, I had as an extreme athlete. I, in my life, I, I did many extreme sports. And the last one that I, that I did, or I'm still doing, it's highlining. That's walking on a slack line that it's meters above the ground, sometimes 1,000 meters above the ground. And um, I've been doing it without protection. So it's like, if you do one mistake, that's the last mistake you do. Um, walking, I mean, doing this sport, at some point, you, you know, you walk on that line, then you arrive on the other side, and then you sit. And uh, I was having the, the impression that I was living in a world that is not real. And that impression was stronger and stronger into me. And I, I started really to, you know, I was walking around normally in the street and I was telling myself, you got to wake up. That's not real. You got to wake up. That's not real. Of course, not really in these wordings, but there was something weird to it. There was something like that I felt off, tremendously off with my experience. And I felt complete only when being, doing my extreme sport activities. And so I started to look into stuff and, uh, Finally, I met my meditation teacher, and uh, I have the feeling he put for me together pieces of a puzzle uh, that I was looking uh, all my life long. So it's like if I had all these pieces, and I never could make sense of them, but I knew the pieces very well, and all the while, he put them together for me. And that was an experience that completely changed my mind, and so I started to meditate within this lineage that is an ancient Tibetan lineage. Uh, I can say more details about that. Mm -hmm. And I received some instruction in Dzogchen meditation and Mahamudra. And what I'm mainly doing at Dzogchen according to the Bund tradition of Tibet. And this changed my life completely. And so right now I'm walking that path that was laid down thousands of years ago uh, by master after master. I'm extremely happy to be. Um, yeah, walking this path. So in, sh in short, that's my meditation journey. I believe now we'll have the chance to get more into the details uh, <laughs> of these. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you said your your meditation teacher did put the puzzle together. And I yeah. think we can, we can uh, tackle this, what you said right now. So what's the relationship between a meditation teacher and a student in a way that does he put the puzzle together or do you still do it yourself? That's an interesting question. So if you go to traditional meditation, the relation between teacher and student is a relation that um, of a lot of respect. And uh, you really see in your teacher somebody that can guide you. And you somehow also, you really rely on them. There is a specific word in English right now I'm missing, devotion. You're really devoted to the teacher and uh, to the lineage and to the teaching. So in Buddhism, we say there are two, three jewels, and this is the Buddha, that is basically the origin of the teachings, the Dharma, this is the, the teachings, and the Sangha, and the Sangha is the community in which you uh, practice, 
And so these three jewels are basically um, important and you have devotion towards them. And the Buddha is for you, uh, of course, it's the Buddha, but it's more also intended as a concept and your teacher represents that uh, in a way. So it's the one that carries the teachings to you as the one that gives you the teaching. So when you, I see my teacher with extreme respect. Uh, he, this is a respect that he, he had to earn. So I was not going there and just thinking that he's a great guru, uh, but I was going there with an extreme uh, skepticism. So I'm a scientist. As you said, you introduced me. Uh, I have a doctor, uh, a PhD in engineering, and um, I'm extremely skeptical about everything. And so I went to this first retreat and I really um, took my time uh, to really kind of get comfortable in the teachings. And then when I saw that they worked on me and basically step by step, uh, I could kind of recognize myself in these teachings. Then I gave my teacher more and more, uh, I was more and more confident in him. And uh, to your question, um, you asked if the teacher put the pieces of the puzzle together for me, or mm -hmm. I did. Um, I think you can see it both, way, both ways, in the sense that somebody helps you, maybe if, as I use the metaphor of the puzzle, it's a little bit like when you have a kid and uh, they do their first puzzle and they have a kid that's been doing this. So they kind of do it themselves, but you kind of also guide them because you know how the picture looks like at the end. And so uh, it's a together process probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, good. Great. So I like to use this time to also honor you one more time that you are here <laughs> right now, because you. behind you, behind you, I forgot to mention, you have such wonderful flutes. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you tell a little, are these also connected somewhat to meditation or is this something completely different that you kind of like take separate or yeah, um, let us know your thought process. There. Yeah. Um, okay. That started from the idea that I do so many extreme sports and then I started to think, you know, when I'll be 60 or 70 and I know that there are people that prove me wrong that they're crashing it with 70. <laughs> but I thought, I'll probably not be able to move my body as I do right now. Yep. And so I need to pick up some interest or stuff that is not really connected to the ability of the body. Yep. And since I always like to play the flutes, and I always wanted to, to have particular flutes, but you cannot buy them anywhere. Um, then I decided I wanted to start making flutes on my own. But when I'm 70, I want to be the best flute maker that there is. So now I'm 40, more or less. I've got 30 years to practice uh, <laughs> until I'm 70. And with 70, I'll be the best. So I think 30 years of practice is, is good. So I, well, I make, I make those flutes. Those are made of bamboo. Yeah. And they're different, different size, different length. And they play different ragas, so different melodies. Yeah. And... Um, it is somewhat connected to meditation because making the flute itself, it is for me a meditation pro process. So I take the bamboo, I see more or less what it wants to be, and uh, I start to hear how it sounds and what it can come out. And then, you know, I go through all the process 
and I use them for meditation. A lot of time I play them in Shavasana. Um, for my students, you might have heard them, right? <laughs> Although lately not I have that not much, played them so be much. Honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have to bring them. I used to do it more, and um, yeah. And sometimes I lead meditations with the sound, so I played flute. Yeah. I can play for you, but I don't know how much it will come through that. Yeah, um, um, I think I think we're uh, taking that uh, at right now. Right now, let's go. Yeah, shall I? Yeah, please, please go ahead. Okay. So, take a comfortable sit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> take a deep inhalation. Exhale. And ground. I, I say more this for me because I need to ground before I play. Sure. Yeah, that was a little simple. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's wonderful. I don't know how you could hear it. Yeah, we 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 heard a little bit. Okay. The, it was good. The thing that good. we heard uh, was good. I will maybe Perfect. come back to you and for another little sample. Uh, that would be amazing. I'm here. I've got, I've got my stuff here. As yeah. you see, there are many. <laughs> great, great. Um, good. Let's let's go on a little bit uh, slowly, yeah. deeper. Um, I like to start with like. Another question here. Is meditation difficult? No. Um, no. It's the same question. Is life difficult? Mm -hmm. And the answer depends. Or is uh, your digestion system difficult? And so if you, for example, uh, uh, let's talk about the digestion system. If you go and see study in the books, um, it's a very complex system, right? So there are many components, many organs involved into it, and many enzymes, you know, and blah, blah, blah. You can get into details. And it's really, really hard to grasp it. Um, the thing is, we're all digesting. It's very simple. <laughs> so, you know, and if you go to your, uh, the doctor that takes care of the belly, your belly doctor, he has studied th this system all its life, right? Mm -hmm. He cannot digest better than you. Mm -hmm. If you go to the eye doctor, he cannot see better than you. So if you want to grasp what meditation is with your intellect, it's extremely complicated. I tell you, you'll fail. You cannot, it's not available uh, to, to that level of uh, existence. But if you want to do it, that's extremely simple. It's like digesting. Okay. You're already doing it. Or breathing, uh, right? I love that. Um, yeah. Um, so going on into this direction, does it even make sense to ask now, like, what is your definition of meditation? Or doesn't it make any sense to discuss that here? I mean, everything makes sense. And I'll try <laughs> to give the best answer. So when my teacher uh, started his first retreat with me, he said, I will tell you what meditation is not. And he said, it's not. Yeah. It's not, um, he said, it's not psychotherapy. It can be used for psychotherapy and it's not relaxation. It can be used for relaxation. And this is because in the West, we use meditation a lot for psychotherapy and it's a fantastic tool, 
but this is not what meditation was designed for. Uh, I mean, I use it for psychotherapy in my coaching sessions. I mean, not a psychotherapist, but I use meditation in order to help people. Uh, and people use meditation to relax. But it's a bit like killing a fly with a, with a bomb. Uh, <laughs> you will kill the fly, but it's like, uh, it, you know, you can do the, the same job a bit more efficiently and without using that power. So that said, I never kill a fly. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, what meditation is? So I also somewhere I read the note: meditation is not what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. and I think that's the best definition because yeah. you can't think about what it is. Uh, yeah, and there is also. Um, Alan Watts in one of his talks about what uh, Zen is, he says, if I should tell you what Zen is, I, I have to tell you that I'm uh, subjecting you to a hoax because I will never be able to tell you. Mm -hmm. However, I'll talk for the next few hours about it. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, what is meditation? So meditation is a, is a tool, is a technology um, that is designed to enlighten you and there are different steps on that and the first step is awakening and we call that as the you know it's in a way the end of the path but it's in the other way the beginning of the path because only once you are that state of you reach that state of mind you can operate out of that state you can refine this awakening into full enlightenment and uh, that's what the meditation was designed for i am mainly talking for the meditation I am in, which again, we can talk more in details where mm -hmm. it comes from, what kind of history it has, but it's, uh, it's related to, to the indigenous religion of Tibet, the Bun religion that was there before Buddhism was implanted in Tibet, but that's taken so many influence from Buddhism that pretty much um, they're very similar. They're extremely similar. So for me, meditation, it is a tool to awaken and to develop that awakening into enlightenment. And then this tool can be used for many different things. And that will bring many other byproducts like peace of mind and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, yeah, that would be my answer right? Good. for yeah. now. But yeah. you can dig deeper. Sure. Um, we, we go a sl slightly in a little bit different direction. Maybe we'll come back yeah. to it. Um, we're, we're going more into like um, close questions at the moment, and then we're digging yeah. deeper wherever. Uh, yeah. So is meditation dangerous? That's one of my favorite questions that I like to discuss with everybody if time is there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a very interesting question. And uh, I don't know how really to, to answer that. I guess the danger is in the guidance uh, that you receive. So in meditation, if you go in an authentic lineage, uh, the, te the teachings are secret. And uh, they are open to you step by step that you are on your journey. Um, why the teaching is secret? Not because who gets the teaching is, uh, I don't know, important person or whatever or special but simply because it's the same thing that 
knives are wonderful tools, you do not give them to kids. You give them to kids step by step, right? And the first uh, knife I gave to my daughter is a knife that doesn't cut very much, uh, and, right? And meditation tools are exactly the same. They can be very sharp knives, and uh, you should not put them into the hands of somebody that has not yet achieved some spiritual maturity. Um, and therefore, the danger is not really in the teachings, like the knife itself is not dangerous. It's the use and the environment, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hope that's clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I mean with of, that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so what do you think about uh, kind of like meditating like with an app or something? You know, there are so many apps uh, out there. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about not having a meditation teacher? What do you think is the danger for people that don't have a meditation teacher? Um, or possible dangers? I think, yeah. Well, I think as, as far as you do meditation, Meditations that are available on YouTube or on the apps, there is, there is not much to worry because they don't go very deep. That's, that's really like scratching the, the surface. Um, although if you are already kind of over the edge uh, and you're ready to, uh, to kind of enter some state of mind, also maybe uh, an app could give you a kick and then you might end up being confused about it um i'm just like you know i'm answering while thinking so mm -hmm. that's why the answer perhaps doesn't come so linear but now maybe it fits into the picture that um, i don't maybe i tell you i don't lead any more meditation sessions for large groups of people mm -hmm. um because before starting the real meditation journey uh, for me or at least what i believe is the deeper meditation journey, let's call it like this. I was teaching meditation, everything was going great. And then after I started these, um, people in my class started to have all kinds of different experiences. Although I was never teaching what has been open to me because teachings that I received are in a particular setting. Uh, and so when I was teaching meditation, like just open uh, dropping classes, that's not the setting, right? So I was teaching only basic stuff, relaxations, or chakra, or anyway, something that, the up meditation, let's call it like this. <laughs> but although I was only teaching at that level, um, people were having all kinds of strange experiences, having uh, visions, entering some states of mind. I knew exactly where they were from, uh, where they were at, so uh, I could exactly connect to them. I, I know these spaces, but I don't think that it is safe to just throw people in that state and then they walk out of your class and, uh, and you know, they might actually um, be disturbed by that. What is, what, if there is somebody that is on the, sorry, my, my telephone is doing something, I just will mm -hmm. put it mute. Yeah, perfect. Um, what if, if you have somebody that is on the edge of a, a psychological uh, or a psychiatric crisis and then it gets thrown off and does not get the support yeah so i think in general the danger is not very high if you go to these apps and so on and most of the thing i think it will do you good however 
if if you want to take up meditation as a spiritual path that has some sense which is not psychotherapy and is not relaxation, uh, you better find a teacher and you find a person that inspires you, a person that proves to be always like uh, knowledgeable. Always, I don't. I want to say always right, but that you always are astonished by how much this person can give you. And you can really say, wow, that person is really not ordinary. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> this, thank you for that answer. Uh, You're welcome. When do you know that you experience meditation? It really is a is again a tricky question. Depends what definition you want to give to meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're talking about concentration, there are markers that you can use. And that's basically uh, how many thoughts are there and how much you uh, can be in a space where there are no thoughts. If you're talking about emptiness meditation, you can measure it by the grab that your thoughts give you. So when a feeling or another feeling, how much you follow. So the reactivity. If you're talking about samadhi, then there are other markers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but there are markers. You, you can, for every stage of meditation, so for example, if you, if you are in a state where you shift into an awakened mind, there are markers that tell you how you perceive things in an awakened mind and so you can use that to kind of uh, benchmark your experience and it's not that you can give an answer like black or white but you can have a feeling on how much you're operating out of a certain state of mind yeah okay so um are there different kind of can you explain a little bit more about these different kind of meditations like does this come out from your lineage like uh, um, that that you have um, concentration meditation maybe mm-hmm. I, I'm not really sure emptiness meditation and meditation mm-hmm. about compassion come does that come out of your lineage and is there more yeah uh, and there is a lot more <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we don't make it into this podcast. And so let me see where I can start from. So I am in this, uh, I'm starting from this lineage, mainly from one lineage that is the burn lineage uh, of the Tibetan Buddhist system. And in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are four different sects. And there is this fifth one that is not really a Buddhist sect, but it's the burn is something on its own, but can kind of con- be considered as a Buddhist sect. And uh, in all of that, of those sects, especially in the burn, the teachings are divided in three branches. Those are the sutras, the tantras, and then the highest teachings, which in the burn are, is Dzogchen. Um You kind of divide... Also, you can talk about shamatha and sunyata, which is uh, concentration and emptiness. And you kind of divide your meditation practice in these two at the highest level. So not at the tantras and the sutras, but when you go to the highest teachings, uh, in these two practices, which can be then broken further down. And mm-hmm. concentration, it is something that does not awaken you, but is a tool to fix the mind. 
Um, so concentration, but what I do and what is normally taught is the nine stages of meditation or the nine stages of staying. That is a, an old Indo-Tibetan system, and I call it Indo-Tibetan because it comes from India, and then what I practice has been developed, further developed in Tibet. There are many versions of that. And this gives you stability of mind. So imagine that you go into a cave and there are some beautiful paintings in the cave and you want to watch them. And you have this light and the light is not very um, bright and you can't hold it very stable. So if you're like this, you're not very likely to see the paintings. And the light is basically a metaphor for your mind that if you have a lot of thoughts all the time and you can't focus your energy in a particular spot, you're not going to see anything. But if that light becomes really bright, so you can really intensify the power of your mind and you can hold it on a single object at will, then you can see what is there. So that's concentration. Mm -hmm. Um, Emptiness is the most uh, misunderstood word in Buddhism. It doesn't mean that things are empty, that they don't contain anything or they don't exist. That would be nihilism but it means that things are empty from the meaning you assign to them. So right now I have a phone in front of me. I have a telephone. The fact that this is a telephone is my own concept because in reality, if you take the telephone apart, the screen uh, and the chips, and, and there is not a telephone-ness. There is no <laughs> feeling of a telephone. There is no sense of telephone in any of the components. So that's a, a description and a designation um, and when you realize that everything is empty, com- in- including this body, so all the concept of who you are, what you should be, and what the world around is, uh, they, they totally change. You see the world differently. And um, yeah, you do that emptiness meditation that goes through stages also in order to be in a certain mindset. And when you have emptiness and when you have concentration, so the union of uh, shamatha and sh- uh, sunyata, uh, then there is, uh, these are the Sanskrit words uh, mm-hmm. for it, uh, then uh, there is a space where you can receive some what is called crossing over instructions and you can actually shift your mind in an awakened state. Yep. Yeah. And then start to work from there to deepen that awakening. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that that is very general answer. I realize <laughs> that, but that's that's all right. Let's mm-hmm. let's go a little bit yeah. uh, further. Uh, yeah. So we already have like oh yeah, fixing the mind and stability of the mind as maybe a goal yeah. of meditation. So what do we think about having goals in meditation and maybe even being like uh, in a way attached to the goals? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. So if you go to the Zen tradition, for example, they say you cannot reach Satori. That is the term they use for either awakening or enlightenment. I don't really know, mm-hmm. but high state of mind. But you cannot achieve Satori by doing something. You cannot achieve Satori by not doing something. Um, so basically, I believe that having goal is, uh, is important um, because that gives you drive, that lets you do some work. Uh, but then if you believe so much into these goals, you, you, you get into another ego game. And so the, the answer is to walk the middle path. 
if you don't do anything, you can awaken, but it's unlikely. And if you want to awaken with all your power, it's also unlikely. So you should kind of walk the middle path. About attachment to your goal and attachment to your meditation practice. That's an interesting question because, for example, in Tibetan, they use different words for attachment. So attachment to, I don't know, food, for example, or attachment to, let's say, negative habits as the use of a particular word that I don't know, but I know they use a particular word. But attachment to your meditation practice as a different word, and they have different meanings. Uh, so they both mean attachment in a way, but one is in a negative sense and the other is in a positive sense. And uh, the positive one is more intended as devotion, is more like, so having an attachment to your meditation practice in the sense that you, it becomes like neurotic or, you know, an obsession, obsessive, then it's for sure a negative thing. But having a drive, because you see that a certain path works for you, um, I think it's a positive thing. Great. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, let's go on. Um, next question is a little bit funny. Who should do go meditation? Ahead. Who should do meditation? Mm -hmm. The answer is who shouldn't do meditation? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so I think one has to do it if you feel comfortable doing it. So I talked a lot to a lot of people that they say, uh, I tried meditation and it doesn't work. And what they really tried is suffering because they were putting in a sitting posture that hurts and they were giving some impossible tasks. And so they got extremely bored and so on. So if that's, the situation you're in, that you're connected only with those feelings because perhaps you have a teacher that you don't connect with and so it cannot give you the instructions. I'm not saying that it's a bad teacher, but you don't connect to it. Uh, and then perhaps meditation is not for you at the moment. And uh, there are a lot of other activities that are uh, um, very helpful for your well-being and so on. And at some point in your life, especially if you have that thing like, I want to know about meditation. You will find that person that makes it really natural for you. And you'll find that teaching, so that situation in which you feel like, oh, that feels really good. There is more to it. You find that curiosity, that thing. Uh, and so I think at that point, you should really, uh, you're on the path. Um, but if meditation means suffering for you, then I strongly suggest you to change it. And maybe you either do not do meditation or you find something else, some other teachers, some other teachings, because, you know, we are what we do. Mm -hmm. So if you're learning meditation, you incorporate meditation. If you're learning suffering, you're learning to suffer, yeah. uh, which is not helpful to anybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can also take on a wonderful craft like flute making, right? For example, yeah, or running or acro yoga. <laughs> yeah so yeah, anything any, yeah go ahead yeah what's your meditation routine and regularity mm -hmm. it depends very much um in the period i'm in so i the meditation i practice is uh 
it doesn't require a lot of sitting time. Not that sitting time is, uh, is not required, but uh, it doesn't emphasize the time in which you sit. So basically, uh, you sit until it feels good and you're doing your things, and then you try to get those realizations and those states of mind that you have off the pillow. So you transport that state of mind that you can uh, easily or in an easier way achieve when you're calm on your pillow and so on. You take it into your uh, life. That's a big part of the practice. Um, so it really depends on which period of my life I'm in. But let's say if I'm in a period where I meditate constantly, I would do uh, more or less half an hour a day. Um, sometimes it can be two sessions of half an hour and sometimes it's 20 minutes sometimes it's three quarters of an hour i either take guided meditations from my teacher or i follow the instructions on my own because right now i know them since uh, i have a little bit of experience in that lineage uh, and this also depends on my state of mind sometimes i feel i want to be guided and sometimes i feel i want to um I have the time to to do it on my own. Yeah, that's more or less what I do. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, I still want to ask you something else there that I haven't mm -hmm. written down. Um, how does it affect your state of mind when you kind of like don't find any time uh, to do meditation if you're kind of like in a in a time span where you just don't have any time to meditate and you feel however you feel <laughs> what what does come up within you mm -hmm. this also depends on how stable i am in that period how which on which level of mind um, i am operating uh, and uh, if i am in a, if i'm centered if i'm very centered and i cannot meditate that's okay because i see meditation as empty as well so it's, again, an empty practice as all the other practices. So if I cannot practice, it doesn't matter because I can hold a certain view. And if there is a feeling coming up, like a feeling of uh, uh, impatience or desire towards something, maybe to meditate or to find some peace, I also see these as empty and I see like just it's a play and that's okay. Uh, and so it basically doesn't, doesn't face me. Um, yeah. If it is a period where I'm really challenged or I haven't been meditating for a long time and so therefore I'm not so centered anymore, um, the feeling that comes up to me is a, a feeling of, um, I don't know how to describe it uh, in a word. Maybe I tell you a bit and maybe the word will come up. Mm -hmm. And missing my purpose. So it's a feeling of uncomfort. And then the moment that I sit again in meditation, I have that feeling, yeah, you wasted your time again. It's like, you, you know, yeah. or I feel disconnected from what my purpose is. Yeah, that's, I see. That's the feeling. Yeah, yeah, I see. And the feeling of maybe sadness or it's not really sadness. It's more like, yeah, I, I think you understand what I mean. Yeah, I know. Missing the purpose yeah. fits it, yeah. I think. So, um... I still wanted to ask you about this meditation in not not like meditational activities like sitting down, but you also already said like uh, making a flute can be also experienced like a little bit like meditation. Maybe like teaching a yoga mm -hmm. class can be also like uh, be a meditation for you. 
in one way maybe yeah especially mm -hmm. as it as it uh, points into the right direction of like purpose maybe everything that points mm -hmm. into the uh, direction of purpose can be uh, mm -hmm. looked at as meditation what do you think about this thought yeah perhaps you can say it like this i would say if one uh takes as meditation the art of being here and now which is one way you could describe meditation, then every activity that kicks you in that here and now feeling that could be building a fluid or running or so on, uh, then it shifts your mind in a state that you can also reach with meditation. So meditation is a technique to get you in that state. So I would more like focus the thing on the, particular mind state that you are in and uh, any other activity that can bring you into that state as the same or similar result to meditation. So I wouldn't really say that, for example, building a flute is meditation, but I would say that building a flute perhaps allows me to enter that state of mind that also meditation allows me to enter. Uh, and so they bring me in the same state of mind. There is a difference though, because while and this is, for example, I have experience in that because what kicked me in some states of mind were my uh, extreme uh, sport activities. And so there are people that say extreme sports are meditation. Uh, you hear this all the time. They're very meditative and so on. Um, and I think it's a bit of a superficial definition. It really doesn't highlight what it really is. But what an extreme sport can do it kicks you in a particular state of mind that you can also achieve through meditation. So that's the link. There is a big difference though, that when I was doing my extreme sport activities, I was kicked in and out of that state of mind without control. It's a, it's a little bit like taking psychedelics. They also kick you in a certain state of mind, but can you come back when you don't take the psychedelic? Uh, you probably can't. The same thing goes for extreme sport. And so basically you've reached a certain state of mind without necessarily having the wisdom of that state of mind. Uh, and therefore you get addicted to it. There are people getting addicted to psychedelics, there are people getting addicted to extreme sports because you start to believe that what you like is the extreme sport. <laughs> but in reality, what you're looking for is the state of mind that you reach. It's not the thing itself. That's what I discovered later. And so if you achieve that particular state of mind following a path that is basically mathematic and it's basically really taking you step by step and you can achieve it on demand once you are proficient and you get your mind control, that's much more powerful. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's go on a little bit uh, and a little bit into deeper questions, even deeper. And um, mainly I want to focus on uh, duality and non-duality of like the mind and body, just mind and body, non-duality and duality. And this question mm -hmm. only makes sense. This question only makes sense if we if we kind of like accept, okay, there's a duality right now. And um, so we're not connected with non-duality right now. So mind and body is one, right? I don't need to explain it to you. I, I explain it more for the viewers, for the listeners. Yeah, please go ahead. <clears throat> 
So the question is, is meditation rather connected like to the body or is meditation rather connected to, to the mind? So talking out of a dual space, as you said, so I'll not talk about non-duality and so on right now. Mm -hmm. um, it depends on the meditation technique you adopt. Because uh, if you go into the tantric teachings, for example, I told you that in Tibet there are like the sutras, the tantras, and then the higher teachings. And the higher teachings are two different. Um, the tantras have a lot of teachings for the body. So there is uh, the main body of the tantric teachings that I know that is probably extremely little. Yeah. Uh, it's dealing with the breath. So you do all these practices of um, that in Sanskrit are called pranayama uh, or um, uh, kundalini. Uh, and what I have been taught is the tummo practice or so the breath of fire. You can actually increase your body temperature of a number of degrees. Um, it's also an extremely dangerous practice because you can really screw up your body. Mm -hmm. And so those teachings are more focused in entering through the door of the body, right? Because you use your body. You really use your body. And of course, with your mind, you focus, you do visualizations, and you do some mind work. And as far as I know, and I say I, I know very little, because uh, I, yeah, I think on an average, I, I know a lot more than the average, but I still think I really know very little. But the, all the highest teachings that I was uh, in contact with um, are mainly instructions for the mind. So where you basically sit and, uh, and then you basically just do it with your mind. Your body is just parked comfortable somewhere. Mm -hmm. When I say mind, though, there is a difference that we have to make because, I mean, in the West, we don't really have a great definition of mind. And if you ask to modern neuroscience, they'll tell you that the mind is what the brain does, um, uh, which I don't agree. Uh, but if you go to uh, Tibetan philosophy, the mind is called the heart mind. And so it's not necessarily connected with your brain. The brain is more seen as the center, the motoric center, the center that regulates your body. In fact, you, you, I'm sure you've seen Buddhists doing that three signs, like drawing prayer hands at the forehead, at the mouth, and at the heart. And this is like body, speech, and mind. Because here is where you drive your body. Here is your speech, that's clear. And your mind is at your heart. So, and I think in a way that we can understand it, it's like when I say instructions for the mind, it doesn't mean for the intellect. It's not for the intellect. Coming back to one of my first answers, it's not instruction to teach you what happens in your digestions, but it's more to digest, right? Mm -hmm. Good. Mm -hmm. um, going a little bit even deeper into that. Yeah, please. I, um, I'm, yeah. I'm excited. Good. Uh, so 
Imagine a practitioner that only connects with the body or imagine a practitioner that only connects with with like the consciousness or, the, or with the awareness, with the presence, whatever you want to call the mind. Um, mm -hmm. What might happen to them? Are there some dangers to that? Yes. Um, yeah, you might leave one of those two components behind. And as a matter of fact, it happened to me as well. Um, I have a practical experience of that. <laughs> I must I must say I, I coined the question a little bit also from like what I knew that happened you know to, to you. Yeah. So so I was I, I kind of like asked this question also to other people and uh, and I was curious about that these questions like also like asking it now to you is like mm -hmm. also like something that I wanted to do. So I just yeah. quickly wanted to mention that. Um there is the danger that you leave one part of the system behind. And um, it's like if you're connected too much with the body, you tend to be materialist because your body is something that really is material in this reality and you use it. And so the tendency is really to see the world as material and existent and being there uh, independently from you. And also there is a big um, risk that you get super attached to your body. Uh, so you develop that attachment. If you connect too much with the mind, the risk is to become nihilist. So if you connect too much with the mind, it means that you, that you basically, you know, things happen in your body because actually everything happens in your, your body is the tool to experience this reality. You cannot actually experience it without the senses and without <laughs> your body, right? Yep. So basically what happens in this reality is somewhat passing through your body. And, uh, and you see all these as empty, as non-existent, to the point that you really don't care anymore about it without probably even realizing. Um, and you become nihilist. So if you see, for example, if you take emptiness, which means that things are not the way you think they are, if you don't do any emptiness practice, um, you become a materialist, like 90% of the people on this planet, that thinks that uh, things are there, they really exist, and they are independent from you, and so on. And if you do emptiness too much, then you become nihilist, like nothing exists, nothing matters there is nothing and uh, in the teachings of buddhism it says you should walk the middle path so it's not being nihilist it's not being materialist that gives you the answer but walking the middle path and uh, and you can walk the middle path only by making mistake because you know where the middle is only when you cross it you don't know it before and so you cross it one time and then you, at some point you realize, oh, I went too far. And then you, you drive back and you cross it another time and again. And hopefully that process is converging. So you always cross it and you go less and less further away so that you stay more and more in the middle. Mm -hmm. Good. 
good. So uh, thank you for all your answers. I want to invite everybody that is listening to uh, in right now to uh, ask some questions if you like. Otherwise, I go just on with my questions that I have for you, Salva. So if you have any questions, feel free to write them. Good. So let's talk about children and animals. What do you think? Are they in a natural state of meditation? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm just thinking if now we should put those two in the same category. Um, okay. But animal... Or animals, children or animals. Yeah, let, let's start from... I mean, let, let me see. Let me start to articulate and then we'll see. Um, but what happens in animals, they are... The difference that we have with animals is that they don't have an intellect. Uh, and therefore, they cannot make uh, projections of what can happen. They cannot make scenarios. So they can, or they can make very little scenarios, you know. So they are more um, connected and live here and now, in a sense. Are animals awakened? Um, I don't know, I wouldn't say so, because in order to awaken, you need the capacity of reflect upon yourself, and animals don't have this capacity. Um, you need a certain really stage of um, consciousness evolution that I don't think it's, it is uh, present in animals. Uh, because they are still very connected with an individual consciousness or a group consciousness of their group uh, that is busy with survivor, mainly. When we talk about kids, they have an intellect, but they don't really use it very much. Uh, and uh, Or maybe they use it, but for example, if you go to the construction of self, because we construct a sense of self, we don't, we're not born with that. They have it only around 11 months. Before that, they don't differ between the self and the environment. And the construction of time comes even later, is one and a half year, according to modern neuropsychology. And uh, in reality, it's a process to construct time, because uh, if you ask a kid, for example, to put events into a calendar, which needs a quite complex structure of time and understanding of time, uh, they can do that only when they're 10 years old. Before that, a calendar does not really make sense. Uh, so the construction of time is something that we believe that time it's a given thing. It's in reality just a construction of mind. And so anyway, getting back to kids, they do not have this construction of time. They do not see the world as we see it. And I have a daughter, I know that it was like this, and I saw that development. Uh, and so we, basically when we see the world, we integrate the world and we use our models of reality to represent the world. Hmm. Kids don't have those models. So they see more of what we would call ultimate reality, uh, which is a lot more fun to see and contains a lot of uh, more information than what we see right now. Uh, but it's also very overwhelming. Uh, so that's why then when we grow up, 
we start to select information. And so our kids awakened. Um, I don't know because I'm not sure how much they're conscious about the state they are. And in order to say that one has a certain state of mind, it's not only about being having your mind in a state of awakening, but it's having the wisdom in which state you are. And then you can operate upon that state, not passively, but you can manifest that state. And, and neither kids or animal do it um, to a full extent. Then I know that this this answer might might uh, many person might not agree with that. And also the terminology that I use is perhaps also uh, we probably would need more time to really get into the details of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for mm -hmm. that answer. You're welcome. Uh, let's let's go. I wanted to ask you just going one di direction there. But what do you think about uh, the bond from mother to child, especially also in the animal world? Uh, do you think like uh, this is this can also pe be perceived by the animal as maybe like meditation? <laughs> no, I mean this is a crazy, crazy question. I don't really know how to formulate this. But also from mother to child, from in the human human world, uh, what do you think? Like, are there meditational qualities in there to observe? In the bondage between mother and child. Exactly. Um, in a way that um, maybe in a compassionate meditation where you where you connect mm -hmm. maybe with love. I, I don't know. <laughs> with uh, the love that yeah. is around you. And yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. I guess I understand the question to an extent. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, there is a certain thing to observe is that before we talked about duality and uh, non-duality, mm -hmm. and while at a certain level, at a certain level of mind, this word is non-dual, and that's what all meditation teachings point to. A child and a mother, they were non-dual in a physical level. Um, so we all had that experience of non-duality when we were in the body of our mothers. And that for sure creates a very special bond. Now you talk about meditation and compassions and how the relation with the mother is seen. So I, 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 know, I know quite something about it. Um, because it happens that the, my meditation teacher is also a um, professor of um, psychology of medical psychology and he wrote books about safety attachment and attachment disturbance but where attachment is meant attachment between mother and child or parents and child so positive attachment in this case and basically what you need to create a positive attachment to your children so that they can feel safe to explore the world and that safe attachment is based on a number of pillars um, that is for example being attuned to your child that you are extremely interested and you know what the child wants before the child asks uh, that's attunement or physical soothing so having a physical contact hugging 
that we're all missing now in Corona times. We will have a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorders because people don't hug anymore or people don't touch anymore because we need it as a child. We need it also now. Uh, and then uh, your parents should show interest uh, in your activities and so really be focused on you. And if you, if you have uh, those kind of ideal parents, then you create that positive, healthy attachment that allows you to feel grounded and you develop, your brain develops in a certain way that you basically feel independent and you feel loved and you feel centered. Um, and so, yeah, this is, uh, um, there is for sure a certain link with uh, this attachment and the capacity of feeling compassion because that's what teaches you to feel with the others as well. The thing is that if you go, for example, to culture like in the East, um, the child is really the center of attention of the parents, at least in the very traditional, and the parents are really respected by the child. So when the child sees the parents, this is a, uh, they are seen as, a, um, as something to look up, right? Uh, and vice versa, the parents see the child as something precious to take care. And this is really in their culture. In our Western culture, uh, especially in the psychology of the last decades, perhaps not very in the last years, this is a bit changing, mm -hmm. but the mother is seen as the cause of every disorder that you might have. Uh, if you see uh, all that came out of Freud studies, and uh, by the way, I am an aerospace engineer, but I studied psychology as well. So that's why I know a little bit about it. Uh, I mean, a lot of disorders are, um, are attributed to the relation to your mother. So we see our parents as the one that gave us all that burden that they were carrying. And so we don't necessarily, in, on an average, have a positive attachment to them. And that differs a little bit with the, with, um, with the cultures of the East yeah. and the West. Okay. And I think based on what kind of relation you have with your parents, uh, then this determines, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for mm -hmm. that answer. I mean, uh, the question was a little bit free, you know, <laughs> flowing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, uh, I hope the answer was something interesting. Yeah, I sure. I tried my best. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we have one question from the chat from Monica. Thank you for that. So what Hi, is, Monica. <laughs> what is the best way to understand when the inner observer is active, the one who sees it all, but is not judging, merely not merely noticing? Mm -hmm. Could you repeat? Could you read yep. it again? I, yep. I really want to be. What is the best um, way to understand mm -hmm. when the inner observer is active? And mm -hmm. then it's just like the one who sees it all, but is not judging, merely not hissing. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's a really nice question. Thanks, Monica, for um, posing this question. So, judgments come with grab judgments are something that you can feel um and so when you judge you basically have moved your mind for example the second yoga sutra 
uh, that I will not say in Sanskrit because otherwise it's really funny. <laughs> but uh, something like uh, I could also do it. It's the, it's the only sutra I know. So. <laughs> um, it says yoga is that technique or that science that brings the fluctuation of the mind to an end. And the fluctuations of the mind is your tendency of going towards what you like and away from what you don't like. Uh, and that's what makes the mind move. So now, for example, I'm talking about that and I'm answering you, Monica. And you might actually start to agree with what I say and perhaps you're coming towards me like, oh, that's really interesting. Or maybe you don't really agree and you say, I don't know, but that's not what I asked. If you're doing any of these two things, you're moving your mind. Uh, and that's a judgment. So judgment creates grab. You like it, you don't like it. So you can feel it in your body. Um, it creates an emotion. And so when you start to to really be sensitive to that, you can feel that judgment because it has an energy to it. And uh, the observer that sees it all, as you define it, I like that definition, um, this is uh, what I would call pure consciousness or pure awareness. Awareness has no grab. Awareness is just like recording what, happen what happens. And it's not even recording, it's just observing. It, uh, recording uh, implies some karma activity. Uh, we can get into that. It's also a very interesting topic. Uh, but awareness itself, so the observer, the supreme observer, is just aware. And there is no grab. So if you're doing your meditation and you feel that there is grab, uh, that means you pull towards something or towards not, and there is a certain emotion, a certain emotion, uh, then there is some judgment going on. Yeah. I don't know if this helps. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So mm -hmm. um, I wonder how you're saying the, the Sanskrit name for it. Would you please, uh, like with the pronunciation and everything, I know it as well. Could, would you say it? The second us? sutra? Yeah, sure. Uh, yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I for never studied Sanskrit. You're welcome. So I'm not Thank sure you. what I'm pronouncing here. <laughs> That's <laughs> good. That's good. Thank you yeah. for sharing. Uh, yeah. Also for the listeners. And um, so, dear Salvatore, we're slowly coming yeah. to an end. And oh, already. Already. So already. Uh, dear uh, friends. I was just getting warm to talk about some really, really deep things. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this another time definitely sure. uh, it was a real pleasure to have you um salvatore My and um would you please to explain to the listeners where they can find you online and mm -hmm. make it sure that they can reach out to you if they maybe have uh, an idea of maybe having a coaching session with you oh that, thank you for this opportunity of uh, marketing myself sure. <laughs> thanks marcel um, so I have a, I basically teach yoga and meditation and I do personal coaching and my personal coaching, this one-to-one -one, is rooted in meditation. Uh, you can find myself on bareful.ch as a word that is a mix between bare, so it means naked and beautiful. So the beauty of being bare, uh, I actually can change the camera angle so that you actually see my logo and my website. Wow. That's my best. Cool. Like, yeah. So, um, and basically this website is divided or is going to be divided soon 
into other websites. One where I put my physical activity will be barefoot.yoga and barefoot.coach will have all the activity for the mind. And I use meditation for personal development. So with meditation, you can really reprogram your mind. And so that's where I basically use it to help people in their life. Yeah, that's what you can find on my channels. And um, if you're interested to know more, just reach out. And uh, I'm not sure where where you upload this podcast. If on there's YouTube. Going to be yeah. a possibility to have a uh, so yeah, definitely. Probably you're gonna put a link there. Exactly. So, you yeah. will find the link. You will find the link in the description yeah. below. And also, if you're listening and on the podcast, there will be also in the description a little link. Uh, dear friends, uh, we are Beautiful. heading over to Discord. If you guys like to chat with us, we're going to a little channel. This was Hellskill Podcast, and we are presenting here Meditation November. Next week, we have the fourth podcast about meditation together with Eski Fisher, my, my uh, yoga teacher and meditation teacher, is coming here, and also Salva's uh, kind of like yoga teacher at one point. And uh, we'll, we'll come here and we will have another wonderful talk about meditation. And I'm very, very excited about that. So tune in live next week at www.moment.yoga slash live. Available on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Health skill podcast. We are leveling up your health skill.